Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that, brother. You know, I had the uh, opportunity to have lunch with Micah this week, our Navy guy here. And uh, it's been so good to have Micah home. Where did he go? There he is. Okay. And uh, I got to thinking about that a little bit. Micah is a young man who grew up in this church. And Micah listened to the things that he learned. He heard. He listened to the things that were going on. He listened to the Word of God. He listened to uh, his teachers in children's church and in basic and, and to his grandparents. And now Micah is just a fine example for all of us. He's a fine young man walking with the Lord serving the Lord exactly where he is in the Navy now. And uh, we're, we're grateful for that, and we're glad to see that. And uh, But I say that very well aware of the fact that we all have people in our lives who don't seem to listen. They don't seem to listen to words of truth. They don't seem to listen to common sense. They don't seem to listen to the gospel. And that can be very frustrating to us, can it? You know, when we teach and we tell and we share important truths with people, or we even share our lives in such a way that we demonstrate the reality of these things, but it becomes clear that the people we're trying to communicate either won't listen or won't hear. We don't see any positive response. So, so I, I, I prefaced it with Micah to say that we do see positive response, but we have those people in our lives that we don't see positive response with. Let's think for a moment about those poor teachers who, who taught the students who did these papers that we're going to look at. Here's a question. To change centimeters to meters, what do you do? You take out centi. <laughs> oh, boy. They were obviously weren't listening, right? Or how about this one? I don't expect us to read all of these on the screen. You can't really read them. Let me just hit a few of the highlights. This is a student who flunked his test because he didn't give correct answers to any of the 13 questions, but he was creative enough to answer with funny answers. They were wrong, but funny. For example, in the, one of the questions was, in which battle did Napoleon die? And he answered, the last one. <laughs> and where was the Declaration of Independence signed? It was signed on the bottom of the page. What can you never eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? If you had three apples and four oranges in one hand and three oranges and four apples in the other hand, what would you have? Very large hands. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> How can you drop a raw egg into a concrete floor without cracking it? Any way you want, because a concrete floor is very hard to crack. <laughs> now... Now, these things are treated humorously. This, this is a real test. That, you know, that's, that's the hard part to understand here. But the reality remains the student flunks the test because they didn't listen, obviously, right? They didn't listen. In recent weeks, I've been deeply troubled, actually, by several situations with individuals who won't listen to words of truth. And as a result, I fear for their futures. In some cases... These individuals are already suffering some of the consequences of their behavior, which are often a direct result of ignoring the truth that's already been spoken to them in one way or another. Let me illustrate with just one example. I can think of, off the top of my head, situations in which I've been involved with uh, more than a half dozen examples just in recent weeks. 
But a few weeks ago at the VBS, Debbie introduced me to a teenage girl who'd brought her younger siblings to the VBS. That girl needed to complete some community service hours. She'd gotten herself in trouble. And while thinking through what she might be able to do around TCF to fulfill this court-ordered requirement, I asked her, why are you in trouble? Well, she told me that she had been caught shoplifting. She also told me that she had been skipping school. And she also told me that she was pregnant. And she said, because of her baby, she really wanted to straighten her life out. That's what she told me. She looked me right in the eye and said, I really want to straighten my life out, and I want to stay out of trouble. She was 15 years old. So I asked her if she believed in God, and she said, absolutely, yes. And then I asked her if she was involved at all in a church. And she said, well, sporadically, there was one that she had attended periodically here and there. But no, she wasn't really involved in a church. And I told her I thought it was essential that she get herself involved in a church because in a good church she would hear the word of God. And I began to give her an example. I picked up my camera, which was sitting on the desk, and I told her that if she knew the word of God, she'd be able to learn how to follow him, how to serve him, and live her life in such a way that she could protect herself and her baby and their future. I told her if she owned this camera that I held up, and the camera manual said that you shouldn't immerse this camera in water, and you did it anyway, you'd have more than just a wet camera. What you would have was a camera that didn't work anymore. It would be ruined because you ignored the owner's manual. Now, of course, the Word of God's primary purpose is to reveal to us God's plan of salvation. But the Word of God also, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through, uh, 13 through, uh, 16 through 17. Let me say that again, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Word of God is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as I was talking to this girl, we began to make arrangements for her to come to the next few days of the VBS and to help out with various tasks and to fulfill some of those required court-appointed hours that she had to do. Now, her siblings came back to TCA, or to the VBS here at TCF. But this girl never came back. We never saw her again. She had an opportunity. She heard the truth, or at least a small part of it, of at least a seed of the truth, but she wouldn't listen. She didn't respond positively to that truth. And you know what, folks? I fear for her future because she didn't listen. We can probably all think of situations like this, both personally, people that we're involved with, And beyond that, how about our culture at large? We're drifting so fast and so far from foundational biblical truths in our culture. And I think most of us are very deeply concerned about the future. When we choose even quietly or unobtrusively to stand or speak for truth in any arena, we're either ignored, people don't listen, or we're mocked, or we're called haters. It's more troubling still when someone we know and love doesn't listen to the truth about a given circumstance and blows right past the warnings and then begins to suffer the consequences of that behavior, having not listened, much of which could have been avoided had they listened to the truth maybe to begin with. Life will bring plenty of trouble without any help from us, regardless of whether or not we listen to the truth. So, Think about that. We don't need to be bringing more pain and hurt into our lives by ignoring 
God's Word, by ignoring these truths. Now, thinking about these things the past couple of weeks, I thought about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to be his spokesperson while he was very young. He was probably just a teenager. So teens here this morning, I want you to think about this. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet while he was just a teenager. His culture was sliding downhill every bit as fast as ours is, even more so, things that we haven't even begun to see yet. What brought on the crisis in the land of Judah at the turn of the 6th century before Christ when Jeremiah was around was a moral and religious depravity traced back to the long reign of Manasseh. He was Judah's most evil king. Now Manasseh reintroduced Baal worship and he set up altars to foreign gods even in the Jerusalem temple area. He even sacrificed his own son to an idol. Jeremiah was called by God to be his prophet during the reign of Josiah, and Josiah was the king who had instituted some reforms right after the evil of Manasseh. But Jehoiakim, who was Josiah's son, so were a few kings away from Manasseh, reversed the direction set by Josiah. In fact, he returned to the pagan idols, and he even practiced child sacrifice. Not good times, folks. Not good times in the land of Judah. We look around today and we lament the moral condition of our nation and really of our world, but we have nothing on Jeremiah's time in history. So Jeremiah was one of the people God chose to speak truth into a very troubled time. Because his message was mostly warning, Jeremiah, you can imagine, didn't make too many friends. Yet his emotions for his people were deep. He agonized over the messages that God asks him to give because these are messages largely of judgment. He was disgusted by the evil around him and he was devastated because of the lack of response. No other prophet allows us such a deep look into his interior life. Jeremiah was courageous for he presented God's word at the risk of his life. He was persevering. For more than 20 years he called on people to repent but without result. Jeremiah was gentle, tender, and sensitive. He felt pain that God would have to mete out punishment. He uncompromisingly delivered God's unpopular but necessary warnings. The word of God was to him like a fire and a hammer. More than 150 times in the book of Jeremiah, one reads, this is what the Lord says, or some similar expression. In some ways, I thought, we're similar to Jeremiah. As believers in Christ in an evil age, trying to speak for and stand for the truth, even as Jeremiah was God's spokesman in an evil age that he lived in. Jeremiah's message was not well received. Often, neither is ours. Jeremiah's message caused people to hate him and even persecute him. Now, some Christians today are hated for their stand. We're not seeing genuine persecution yet here in America, but it may come. And it may come sooner than we think. And here's the other thing. Jeremiah got weary. Jeremiah got tired. He got tired of plodding away and speaking God's word and seeing no results. His faith in God was challenged by the lack of response that he saw to his message and by the consequences of his faithful delivering of God's word. He had a difficult life. His hometown plotted against him. And he endured much persecution in the pursuit 
of his ministry, the ministry that God had called him to. He was a faithful preacher, but he apparently only had two converts. At least that's what we see in the book. There are only two mentioned in the entire book. He may have had more that weren't mentioned in the book, but there are only two who respond favorably to Jeremiah's teaching and preaching. He got so weary that he complained to God in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. This is what he said. O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Let me paraphrase that. It's as if Jeremiah was saying to God, you tricked me, God. You tricked me. You forced me into doing what you wanted, and now I'm seen as a total idiot. People mock me. They make fun of me all the time. Whenever I speak, I tell of judgment, violence, total destruction. And because of this word, you told me to bring God. I'm insulted, and I'm looked down on all the time. That's all I ever experience. Now, none of us can relate to some of Jeremiah's experience, none of us here at least, to being bound in a stockade, to being beaten, ridiculed, scorned. That's what takes place in the verses just before this complaint that we read in Jeremiah 20. Now, some of us may at some point in our Christian lives have been mocked or insulted, but we can all relate in some way to what Jeremiah was at the point that he wrote this in Jeremiah chapter 20. We can grow tired. We can grow weary of speaking for or standing for the truth and earning only mockery or having no one just listen. We can grow weary. It can, it can get old, folks, doesn't it? It gets old when we speak the truth, when we speak even just common sense into somebody's life and they don't listen. We're weary sometimes of being God's witnesses. But God's word to us is similar to what he spoke to Jeremiah. No, we're not prophets, but we are witnesses, all of us. All of us are witnesses, just as God promised Jeremiah that he would equip him to be his spokesperson, God did the same with us in what's really a new and better way and with a new and better message than even Jeremiah had. That's key because our message has some significant differences from Jeremiah's. We'll look at this in a moment. We may have tried in as many ways as possible to share the good news of the gospel with people we know, with people we meet, only to be frustrated because it seems like there's no spiritual movement, because it seems as though our prayers aren't heard, because it seems like people ignore what we have to say. But God might answer us in a way similar to what he originally spoke to Jeremiah at his calling. So let's back up for a minute and look briefly at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 where we read this. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah's early response to God's call on him was, hey, I'm too young. 
I can't do this. You must really mean, you must really need somebody else. I'm too young. I can't possibly fill the role that God has assigned for me. But God gave Jeremiah three specific things to answer these objections as to why he couldn't possibly be his messenger or his witness that God called him to be. First of all, God stressed the authority under which Jeremiah should act and speak. Inexperience was no excuse. Jeremiah wouldn't choose his audience and he wouldn't even choose his message. He was to go to everyone God sent him to and say whatever God commanded. God told Jeremiah that he didn't need to be eloquent or a gifted speaker. That probably lets a lot of us off the hook. The only thing he needed to do was to be faithful, to hear from God, and to obey. Gee, I hear an echo from last week, what Gordon preached. Trust and obey. That's God's word to us. God told Jeremiah that he would protect him. We have to see here what protect means. Now, clearly, Jeremiah's fears for his own well-being were very real, weren't they? The people to whom he spoke God's word often did try to get rid of him. As we already noted, he did suffer, and he wasn't exempt from that. God's protection of Jeremiah extended to protecting his ability to speak the truth for as long as God chose. So as long as God chose to use him, Jeremiah was protected. But God told Jeremiah, don't be afraid of them. Because God would be on Jeremiah's side. He would be with him. So though the people may try to kill him, God promised to rescue him. And then finally, God showed Jeremiah the source of his message. The Lord reached out his hand, and he touched Jeremiah's mouth and told him that he, God, would put God's very own words into his mouth. Now, each of these things applies to us as weary witnesses, weary in well-doing. When we feel a little bit inadequate for the task, God will choose those to whom we are to speak. He will protect us and give us the words to share. As with Jeremiah, this doesn't guarantee us peace and quiet. It doesn't guarantee us no suffering. It also doesn't guarantee us that people are going to listen to us. After all, the words translated witness and martyr are from the same Greek word in the original language of the New Testament. That's a little sobering to think about. But God will protect us to speak his truth for as long as he chooses. As Willard Hudson once quoted, we're immortal until God's done with us. And we have the word of God as the source for these words to share. God told Jeremiah he'd be equipped to speak for him. He told the apostles of Jesus the same thing. And by extension, I believe he says the same thing to us by his equipping for us, as we noted a little bit earlier, and that equipping for us is new and it's better. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power. This is Jesus' words to his disciple. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now think about that. Two key things here related to our theme this morning. The Holy Spirit, in a new and a fresh way, somehow, and I don't know all the ins and outs of this, somehow it was new and fresh and different than what Jeremiah had, what Jeremiah could draw on. Yes, God was with him. Yes, God used him. But we have the Holy Spirit. 
In a new and a fresh way, the Holy Spirit gives us power. And it's not power for power's sake. It's not power just to be flashy. It's power to live a godly life. But the immediate context here, it's power to be His witnesses. So we will have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And God will use us as His witnesses. Now, He promised Jeremiah He would be with him. God promises us as his witnesses, not just that he is with us, but by the Holy Spirit, he is in us, equipping us, empowering us to be his witnesses. So as followers of Christ, as his witnesses, we are in some ways like Jeremiah and can certainly learn from and be inspired by Jeremiah. But there's another key way in which we're not like Jeremiah. Jeremiah's message was largely one of judgment. Our message is largely one of mercy and grace at the cross of Christ. Now, of course, yes, there is mercy. There is deliverance hinted at in Jeremiah's message. And he prophesied something of what the new covenant would look like. And yes, there is something of judgment in our message As the gospel isn't the gospel, think about this. The gospel isn't really the gospel until and unless it includes the very reality of impending judgment, the bad news, if you will, before there can be the very real gift of mercy and grace, the good news, which is the gospel. But we preach a gospel message that Jeremiah could only foresee. He could only look out into the future and see what would come. We, on the other hand, As believers in Christ, we are personal, front row, seen it with our own eyes, witnesses to a gospel message that Jeremiah could only see prophetically from a distance. Yet we can witness to the gospel as an already accomplished fact on which we can stand and trust and rely and stake our future. So Jeremiah's message contained the future prophecy of good news, But our message is good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah saw it coming. He saw it and he spoke it in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, where he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, though Jeremiah's message was mostly one of judgment, in other words, do this, says the Lord, or I will bring this judgment on you, it included this high point that we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophecy of a new day in which the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, allowing God's law to be written on our hearts. Yes, there will be judgment, but yes, also God will save his people. You know, it's certainly correct to call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. We see his emotions so clearly illustrated throughout the book. But he's also a man of steel conviction. 
He's a man of perseverance. His courage in the face of the lack of response, indeed the negative response to his pointing out the people's sinfulness was exemplary. It was a model for us. Not necessarily a model in his style of witness, okay? But I don't think we're necessarily called to speak the way Jeremiah spoke. But a model in his persevering heart attitude, his obedience to God's instruction to be God's spokesperson in his generation, a model of faithfulness to God's call. Our call, our call is different than Jeremiah's, but it's same in some ways. Our call is to be witnesses. Weary or not, results or not, spiritual movement or not, we are called to be his witnesses. I'd like to cover briefly four key points which may motivate us, I hope, will convict us, and ultimately it will encourage us and exhort us for the task which we Christians consider to be our marching orders from these two well-known passages of Scripture, one that we already read, the other one, Matthew Chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Okay. Don't you love technology? There we go. Okay. Which says, Go therefore, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then, of course, the promise that we just read in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the four key points are all somehow related to one another and this theme. First of all, who cares? Who cares? How much do we really care about sharing God's wonderful plan of salvation, the good news of the gospel, and our own circle of influence, and perhaps beyond if God calls us to do that? Then there's the salvation continuum. It's our role in bringing someone to receive God's saving grace. And it can be anywhere along the line that leads someone to salvation. And more often than not, for most of us as individuals, it may not include the reaping, that actual moment of salvation that we all desire to see. In other words, it's a process. Third, we're just tools. Salvation's God's thing. It's not ours. God does it, and all we are, the most we are, is instruments of His grace. And finally, love is the greatest apologetic. It's the greatest reason for people to believe in Christ. Now, many of you know who General William Booth is. Who knows who William Booth is? Founder of Salvation Army. He wrote a piece once based on a vision that he had called Who Cares? Let me just read a portion of the paraphrased version of this. If you want to read the whole thing, uh, ask me and I can email it to you or get you a printout. Here's an artist's conception of Booth's vision. Some of you may have seen this. And let me just read a few uh, paragraphs from his vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. 
And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of these, who were already safe on the platform, were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. Booth goes on to describe the activity in detail, the activity of those who were on the platform. And he lamented that there were way too many on the platform who seemed to have forgotten that they too had once been in that same churning ocean of souls and they too had been pulled out by God's grace through the efforts of one of the already saved on the platform which was built on the rock of Christ. And his question in the midst of this word picture was, who cares? Who cares? Why aren't more people on the platform doing anything to help those who are still drowning in the sea? Booth could never be accused of mincing words or doing anything half-heartedly. If you know anything about him, he once said he believed that he could, if he could just dangle each of his young Salvation Army officers over hell for a few minutes, he would never again have any trouble keeping them motivated about being witnesses for Christ. The truth is, we can get so complacent about our salvation. Hey, we're there, we're in. We can get so complacent that we forget that the churning ocean out of which we were removed when we reached up our hand to Christ and were rescued, and then maybe God's messenger or witness helped us out. He used these people as tools to rescue us. We were in the same place, folks. Who cares? Who cares? Well, we know that Jesus cares. And the question we must ask ourselves today, even in our sometimes weary state, even recognizing that we can speak and speak and speak the truth and we can do it absolutely right. I'm not talking about the people who do it poorly. We can do it absolutely right and sometimes people still don't listen. Even with that, do we care? Even in our weary state, what is our job on this platform of safety that we stand on or near the churning ocean? Safety from do our lives, do our activities, do our spending. Do these reveal that we care too? That's a question for ourselves. Next, there's the salvation continuum. Now, we've looked at this idea before, but for all of us, whether we recognize it or not, the steps we take on the road to salvation are a process, a continuum, if you will. Now, during this process, God does many different things to prepare our hearts to receive the gift of eternal life through Christ. If we think of it like a timeline, all of us could look back in our lives and see those things that God used to cultivate the soil of our hearts, to break up the hard soil, to plant a seed, to water, to nurture that growth. And for those who are now in Christ, he eventually harvested that seed for salvation in our lives. And we must remember that those who do not know Christ, the people all in our various circles of influence, are all out there somewhere along that continuum today somewhere on that line before the harvesting of their souls. In 1 Corinthians, we see Paul reminding of this, this fact. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay. There we go. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And then in the Gospel of John, we read this in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Isn't it interesting here in this passage from John that Jesus said others have done the hard work and that the work he's speaking of are those things that come before the harvest. They're the things that come before the reaping of the harvest. We don't tend to think of it that way. We tend to think in terms of the results that we see. In other words, somebody comes to Christ, the joy of seeing a harvest of souls come into the kingdom of God. And that's good. Yet here, Jesus is telling us that it's always a team effort. And we know from experience that often we don't even know the teammates who might have worked in this field of this individual's soul before us. So the success of the harvester depends on the sower, the planter, and all those who came before that person. And Jesus says the sower has the hard job. We tend to think of evangelism as the moment of salvation, but it's all these things along the salvation continuum. We all have people in our circle of influence whom God has placed strategically in our lives. You have people you know that I'll never meet, and the reverse is true. Jesus met unbelievers where they were, and he realized what many of us sometimes don't seem to remember today, that cultivators have to get out in the field. It's the same for most of us. We're out there. We're out there, folks. We're out there in the mainstream of life. We're out there in our jobs and in our schools and in our neighborhoods and in our extracurricular activities. So we might cultivate in that place. We might water. We might plant. Or we might reap. But all of these things are vital tasks in seeing souls rescued from the kingdom of darkness or maybe the churning ocean from the visual image we saw a moment ago and brought into the kingdom of his marvelous light, the marvelous light on that platform where we're all safe and secure. Perhaps most importantly, we have to remember this. Salvation is God's work. We are only instruments or tools. Now, we are instruments. We are tools. And we need to be open and willing and available to be that. But we are instruments. We can't save anybody. We saw that in the passage we read a moment ago where it said God gives the growth. God brings the harvest. And that fact, really, if you think about it, that should be freeing to us in our role as witnesses. Rebecca Pippert wrote this, The finest, most well-crafted, apologetically brilliant presentation of the gospel cannot save a single soul because we cannot reveal the true nature of Jesus. The Spirit must do that. Only the Spirit of God can convince people, convict them of their sin, and convert their lives. And finally, 
and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but love is the greatest apologetic. We're not going to take time to flesh this out today because I'm going to talk about that in detail, in depth, in a couple of weeks. But to close this message, we noted that Jeremiah had seasons of weariness and complaint. We have seasons of weariness and complaint and discouragement, really, wondering if, if does anything we do really matter? Does it really count? Does it do any good at all? Is anyone listening? But Jeremiah never stayed there in this discouragement, and we can't either. Jeremiah was courageous, folks. We need to be courageous. We must find our strength and our courage in Christ. Right after Jeremiah said that the word of the Lord had brought him insults and reproach, he said this in the very next verse in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. I, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So here at the end of the sermon, we finally get to the title of the sermon. I hope God's word in us, his message in us for this dying world around us is like our bones on fire. Something so real, something so powerful in us that we cannot hold it in regardless of how weary we may be, regardless of how discouraged we can get when people just don't seem to listen and then we watch them go off to the consequences of not listening. Folks, this is not just the preacher's job. This is all of us. This is all of us. It's echoed by the early church. Soon after receiving that promise that we talked about in Acts 1.8, that promise that we would receive power from the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses that God promised, we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, and they, wrote, they said this, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help ourselves, folks. We have seen and heard so much. We have experienced so much of the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't help but tell you. We can't help but speak of these things that we are witnesses of. We are witnesses of it. We have experienced this ourselves. So my prayer for all of us this morning would be that we would have the perseverance and the courage that Jeremiah had in the midst of our weariness and that we would fulfill this verse from Philemon chapter 1, verse 6, which says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Amen? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just ignite our bones. We pray that our bones would be on fire in the way that Jeremiah talked about your word being so strong, so powerful that it was like a fire shut up in his bones, Lord God. And we would be like the early church that said, we can't help it. We can't help but speak of all the things that we have seen and heard. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us in those moments of weariness, those seasons even of weariness and discouragement when it seems like there's no movement, when we look around us and we see people suffering the consequences of not listening to the truth. 
Father, help us to persevere. Help us to have courage. Help us to be your witnesses. And Lord, we know that we are so unable to do that on our own. And we know, Heavenly Father, that salvation is your work. But we do say, Father God, that we want to be your tools. We want to be your instruments. We want to be your witnesses, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.